uh, I think most people in evangelicalism, when they see a squirrel, thinks of Gene Clyde. It's really strange when you think about it. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. It's Friday. Do you know where your squirrel is? I am right here in the ARN studios coming to you with another episode of Squirrel Chatter, a podcast dedicated to scripture, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. And we webcast at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And you can download us wherever you find fine podcasts. So I encourage you to do that. Always welcome your comments at squirrelchatter at protonmail.com. Let's see. That's, gosh, it's Friday. That means it's Federalist Friday. We'll be going through the Federalist papers. We're going to be looking at Federalist 14 today. Before we get started, I want to remind you that Squirrel Chatter is a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com, check out all the great curated podcasts that are over there just waiting for you. Mm. Coffee. I love coffee. Coffee makes morning worthwhile. Uh, coffee is another sign that God loves us. All right. Um, just a couple of notes. 40 years ago today, my favorite album of all time, rock and roll album, was released by Def Leppard, Pyromania. Um, I posted about this on, on Facebook and Twitter, that uh, my favorite track off of the album is Too Late for Love. So that's my favorite song off my favorite album. Uh, still a great album. Oh, it still holds up. Uh one of the greatest of all time. I think it's better in many ways than than the the uh, Hysteria album that followed it, although Hysteria is fabulous. And probably the reason I like Pyromaniac or Pyromania more is the fact that when it came out, I was in high school. So that was the album that you know I was constantly playing in my car. I had, now back then, this is something that, that uh, uh, modern uh, young people probably can't grasp, but commercial cassette tapes, like if you, if you bought an album on cassette, the quality wasn't all that good. And so what we would do, the way to buy music was vinyl. And that was the best sound quality, you know, best best sound quality. And the like I said, the, the tapes were not the best quality. And so we would buy albums on vinyl and we would buy quality cassettes. I used Maxell UDXL2s. I can still tell you, 90-minute cassettes. They had 45 minutes on each side, which meant you could put an album on each side of the cassette. And so one cassette would have two albums. And I had a cassette, summer of 1983. I had a cassette that hardly ever left the tape deck of my 72 Pinto as I was running around in 1983 in high school. And on one side was Pyromania. 
And on the other side was Loverboy's album of that year. Was it, uh, oh, what was the name of it? Keep It Up? Now i got to look it up. I'll tell you the uh, name of the album. But the funny thing was that I had on the Loverboy album, I had Side 2 recorded first. So you listen to Side 2, then Side 1, because the the first sir, the first song on, on Side 2 was Queen of the Broken Hearts, and that was my favorite song off of that album. So that was, uh, okay, let me look it up. Loverboy, 1980, 1983. Let's see what the album was. That was, yes, Keep It Up. 1983. Um, great album. So that tape with Loverboy's Keep It Up on one side and Def Leppard's Pyromania on the other side, as I said, that hardly ever left my tape deck as I ran around the, the Frenchtown Valley as a, you know, that was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. Um, kind of the last, I mean, I know I worked because I was working for my dad. I was building, uh, one of the projects that we worked on that summer was building the church building that I now attend. Um, so I know I was working and I remember working, but I don't remember working. I just remember having a good time. I also bucked bales and changed pipe for one of the local, for a couple of the local ranches for, for gas money and stuff. But I just remember having fun. I remember swimming. I remember you know, hiking in the woods and driving around. It was just a great summer. And uh, I think every every youth has a summer that they look back on and just think, that was the year. That was a good time. That was kind of the peak of my youth when I just was, was having fun. The responsibilities of adulthood hadn't kicked in yet. And so was able to to relax and just enjoy life for a summer. And that was 1983, that was 40 years ago, and the album of that summer was Def Leppard's Pyromania, and that album was released 40 years ago today. So I just thought I would bring that up. All right, let us begin, as is our practice, with the Prayer of Confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life, to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, we are, uh, as it is Federalist Friday, and our topic today is not uh, biblical or theological, 
Um, as we on Fridays and Mondays, we are reading through John MacArthur's daily readings from the life of Christ, volume one. And today's devotional is testimony to Jesus's sinlessness. The verse for this devotional is Matthew 3.14, which reads, John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized for you, and do you come to me? Um, remember, we're, we're looking at the, the, uh, the baptism of Jesus as re recounted for us in the Gospel of Matthew. Dr. MacArthur writes, John the Baptist's initial reluctance to baptize Jesus is a testimony to Jesus' sinlessness and John's awareness of his own sinfulness. In effect, John said to Jesus, I am a sinner, just like everyone else I baptize. So why should you, the sinless Son of God, want me to baptize you? In an indirect yet definite fashion, John agreed with the latter description of Christ by the writer of Hebrews, one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus himself testified to his perfect righteousness and his reason for wanting to be baptized, permitted at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, Matthew 3.15. Jesus' words did not deny his superiority to John the Baptist or his sinlessness. Permitted at this time is an idiomatic expression meaning that Christ's baptism, though seemingly not appropriate or necessary, was actually appropriate for this special time. The Lord understood John's strong hesitation and knew it came from deep spiritual commitment and sincerity. Thus, John, he gave John divine permission to do what he was otherwise reluctant to do so he could perfectly fulfill the Father's plan. In the application, he says, ask yourself, how do you think you would have reacted to Jesus' request for baptism? How do you react today when you are in his presence, in awe of his holiness and purity? Pay, pray for the spiritual understanding to know that by his grace, he has washed this same righteousness over you. All right, again, that's John MacArthur, Daily Readings from the Life of Christ, Volume 1. All right, well, it's Federalist Friday, and we are going through the Federalist Papers. And today we come to Federalist number 14. And uh, as requested, I may stop to offer some clarifying remarks or comments during the reading of the Federalist paper. Um, and uh, just to, to clarify some things, if something occurs to me, I don't have any notes to that effect. I just have the Federalist number 14 in my, in my show notes. Federalist 14 is titled Objections to the Proposed Constitution from Extent of Territory Answered from the New York Packet, Friday, November 30th, 1787. And this one is written by James Madison. To the people of the state of New York, and remember, just to remind you, these are written to every state, but this particular, the, the, pers the version that has been preserved for us is the one from the Daily Packet, which was a New York newspaper. And so this particular article was addressed to the people of New York. Other newspapers published the same articles, and they were addressed to the people of that state. So 
This is just simply a, an example of which of the Federalist Papers. This is the one that was preserved. This is the one that's been published down through the years. My understanding is that they were identical in every paper, just simply addressed to different people. To the people of the state of New York, we have seen the necessity of the Union as our bulwark against foreign danger, as the conservator of peace among ourselves, as the guardian of our commerce and other common interests, as the only substitute for those military establishments which have subverted the liberties of the old world, and as the proper antidote for the disease of faction, which have proven fatal to other popular governments, and of which alarming symptoms have been betrayed by our own. So he's, this is a summary of the first 13 Federalist Papers. These are what every one of these has been written against. All that remains within this branch of our inquiries is to take notice of an objection that may be drawn from the great extent of country which the Union embraces. A few observations on this subject will be the more proper, as it is perceived that the adversaries of the new Constitution are availing themselves of the prevailing prejudice with regard to the practicable sphere of Republican administration in order to supply by imaginary difficulties the want of those solid objections which they endeavor in vain to find. He's throwing shade on those who object, basically saying this is the best they can come up with. It's not worth much. They can't come up with anything good, but we're going to answer this anyway. Um, the objection is basically that the, the form of government would not be sufficient for the amount of territory. That's, that's the objection that he's answering here. The nation would be too big for a Republican form of government. Madison continues, the error which limits Republican government to a narrow district has been unfolded and refuted in preceding papers. I remark here only that it seems to owe its rise and prevalence chiefly to the confounding of a republic with a democracy, applying to the former reasonings drawn from the nature of the latter. So what he's saying is that in the the, the problem with a de pure democracy, which is mob rule, remember, a pure democracy is the rule of the majority, the dictatorship of the majority, with no protections for the minority. Whereas in a republic, you have the representative government and the rule of law, which protects the minority. In a pure democracy, the larger it is, the less well it functions because of the different pressures and interests of different regions and the different distribution of population. So more populous regions will vote according to their own local interests, which may have little or nothing to do with distant and less populated regions. But the distance and less populated regions would be overruled because the more populated regions have the majority. So the, the, a, an increasing size in a pure democracy is a problem. But a republic is not the same thing. And so what Madison is saying here is that they're, they're bringing up objections to a democracy and trying to apply it to a republic, and it's apples and oranges. 
Madison continues, the true distinction between these forms was also ad, uh, adverted on, to on a former occasion. It is that in a democracy, the people meet and exercise the government in person. In a republic, they assemble and administer it by their representatives and agents. A democracy, consequently, will be confined to a small spot. A republic may be extended over a large region. To this accidental source of the error may be added the artifice of some celebrated authors whose writings have had a great share in forming the modern standard of political opinions. Being subjects either of an absolute or limited monarchy, they have endeavored to heighten the advantages or palliate the evils of these forms. By placing in comparison the vices and defects of the Republican and by citing as specimens of the latter the turbulent democracies of ancient Greece and modern Italy. Under the confusion of names, it has been an easy task to transfer to a republic observations applicable to a democracy only, and among others, the observation that it can never be established but among a small number of people living within a small compass of territory. So basically he's saying what I just said, that the, these writers in Europe, supporters of monarchy, which in the 18th century was still a major form of government in the world, and would be really until World War I as a, as a form of government. Um, you know, the, the King of England in prior to World War I had much more political power than Charles III does today. His monarchies, the, the, the monarchy in England, um, while it still has some practical, uh, practical applications, is largely ceremonial and symbolic. Madison continues, Such a fallacy may have been the less perceived, as most of the popular governments of antiquity were of the democratic species. And even in modern Europe, to which we owe the great principle of representation, no example is seen of a government wholly popular and founded at the same time wholly on that principle. So there's, they said there's, there are no pure democracies in Europe, and just at the same time there were no pure monarchies in Europe at the time. If Europe has the merit of discovering this great mechanical power in government, by the simple agency of which the will of the largest political body may be concentrated, and its force directed to any object which the public, re public good requires, America can claim the merit of making the discovery the basis of unmixed and extensive republics. It is only to be lamented that any of her citizens should wish to deprive her of the additional merit of displaying its full efficacy in the establishment of the comprehensive system now under consideration. So basically he's saying they're whining about stuff that we've already fixed in the Constitution. Continuing, as the natural limit of a democracy is that distance from the central point which will just permit the most remote citizens to assemble as often as their public functions demand, and will include no greater number than can join in those functions. So the natural limit of a republic is that distance from the center 
which will barely allow the representatives to meet as often as may be necessary for the administration of public affairs. Can it be said that the limits of the United States exceed this distance? It will not be said by those who recollect that the Atlantic coast is the longest side of the Union, that during the term of 13 years the representatives of the states have been almost continually assembled, and that the members from the most distant states are not chargeable with greater intermissions of attendance than those from the states in the neighborhood of Congress. So, of course, at this time, the Continental Congress for the uh, Confederacy was, I believe, still meeting in Philadelphia at Independence Hall. And he's basically saying, the people from Philadelphia don't attend more, the representatives from, from Pennsylvania don't attend more than the representatives from Georgia or from Maine the furthest colonies or states because we're past the civil war they're not colony or past the revolutionary war they're not colonies anymore but the distant states are attending just as often just as frequently as the local states in relation to where congress was meeting and so it's not a valid argument that the representatives can't get there okay Continuing, Madison writes that we may form a juster estimate with regard to this interesting subject. Let us resort to the actual dimensions of the Union. The limits, as fixed by the Treaty of Peace, are on the east, the Atlantic. On the south, the latitude of 31 degrees. On the west, the Mississippi. And on the north, an irregular line running in some instances beyond the 40, 45th degree in others falling as low as the 42nd. The southern shore of Lake Erie lies below that latitude. Computing the distance between the 31st and the 45th degrees, it amounts to 973 common miles, computing it from 31 to 42 degrees to 764 miles and a half. Taking the mean for the distance, the amount will be 868 miles and three quarters. The mean distance from the Atlantic to the Mississippi does not probably exceed 750 miles. On a comparison of this extent with that of several countries in Europe, the practica practicability of the rendering of our system commensurates to it appears to be demonstrable. It is not a great deal larger than Germany, where a diet representing the whole empire is continually assembled, or the, the German parliament was called the Diet. Um, we remember that from uh, back to the Holy Roman Empire days when uh, Martin Luther appeared at the Diet of Worms to uh, give an answer for the charges of heresy. That's where he made the, the famous Here I Stand speech. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. So in Germany... A diet representing the whole empire is continually assembled. And he's saying Germany is no larger than the United States at that time. Excuse me. Get some water, uh, coffee here. Or then Poland before the late dismemberment, where another national diet was the depository of the supreme power. Passing by France and Spain, we find that in Great Britain, inferior as it may be in size, 
The representatives of the northern extremities of the island have as far to travel to the National Council as will be required of those of the most remote parts of the Union. And to think about the fact that they were worried about the size of the United States then, and we are much larger now. Now, of course, we have much better forms of transportation. And by the time the United States spread to the Pacific, we had railroads, which made it much more practical to get to the capital. But, uh, you know, remember, they're dealing with a time period when everything moved at the speed of horse. Traveling some five, six hundred miles was a great endeavor. And, and so this was the, the world in which they lived, and so this, this is reflecting that. So as favorable as this view of the subject may be, some observations remain which will place it in a light still more satisfactory. In the first place, it is to be remembered that the general government is not to be charged with the whole power of making and administering laws. Its jurisdiction is limited to certain enumerated objects which concern all the members of the Republic, but which are not to be attained by the separate provisions of any. Limited, enumerated powers of the federal government. That's an important phrase, folks. It's found in the Constitution, and it's found in the Federalist Papers, and it is something that our current Congress and Congress, the federal government for the last hundred years, has exceeded their enumerated powers to a great extent. This is one of the big problems that we have in our nation these days. It's one of the reasons why we're doing Federalist Fridays, is to point this out. So the federal government's jurisdiction is limited to certain enumerated objects. Enumerated means it's a numbered list. First they can do this, second they can do this. This is a list of the things that the federal government can do. If it's not on that list, the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over it. Things like banning gas stoves, just say it. Which concern all the members of the Republic, but which are not to be attained by the separate provisions of any. The subordinate governments, which can extend their care to all those other subjects, which can be separately provided for, will retain their due authority and activity. Were it proposed by the plan of the convention to abolish the governments of the particular states, its adversaries would have some ground for their objection though it would not be difficult to show that if they were abolished, the general government would be, compe excuse me, would be compelled by the principle of self-preservation to reinstate them in their proper jurisdiction. So what is he saying here? He says the state governments are supposed to do the majority of the governing. The state governments do the majority of the governing because the states are able to make decisions that are specific to their states. So that, you know, state and local governments deal with the everyday, day-to-day -day matters that government needs to attend to. Whereas the federal government was limited to those matters that 
the entire nation was concerned with. And when we, when we finish the Federalist Papers, like I said, we're going to go back through the Constitution and we're going to look at the Constitution article by article and amendment by amendment and talk about what they say and what they mean and what they do and how it's supposed to work and how it isn't working these days. So, and he says that if the, if the Constitution abolished the state governments, the federal government would find it necessary to reinstitute them as, you know, local jurisdictions because they deal with things that aren't the federal government's job. A second observation is to be made, Madison continues, is that the immediate object of the federal constitution is to secure the union of the 13 primitive states, which we know to be practicable, and to add to them such other states as may arise in their own bosoms or in their neighborhoods, which we cannot doubt to be equally practicable. Practicable. The arrangements that may be necessary for those angles and factions of our territories which lie on our northwestern frontier must be left to those whom further discoveries and experience will render more equal to the task. I'm basically saying, as the nation grows, there will be problems occurring because of that growth, and the people who are in charge at that time can deal with it. It's their problem. It's not our problem. But the Constitution has been equipped to deal with those issues. So the arrangements are, are made in the Constitution. Let it be remarked, in the third place, that the intercourse throughout the Union will be facilitated by new improvements. Roads will everywhere, everywhere be shortened and kept in better order. Accommodations for travelers will be multiplied and ameliorated. An interior navigation on our eastern side will be opened throughout or nearly throughout the whole extent of the 13 states. The, the western side was the Mississippi River, which would be, which is a, a highly navigable river. And indeed, I mean, uh, less than 100 years later, the Mississippi River was full of steam-powered paddle boats taking people up and down from New Orleans to St. Louis and then up the Missouri all the way into Montana. The communication between the Western and Atlantic districts and between the different parts of each will be rendered more and more easy by those numerous canals with which the beneficent of beneficence of nature has intersected our country and which art finds it so little difficult to connect and complete. So at this time, this is, of course, pre-railroad, canals were the, the transportation link of choice. And, uh, of course, we see many canals in the Northeast, um, which have been, uh, you don't see them in the rest of the country because by the time the, the rest of the country was settled, especially as you go west, Railroads had, had replaced canals because they were both easier to build and faster um, and could haul, you know, vast amounts of, of freight. And so the, the, the saying that north and south, you have 
sailing up and down the, the eastern seaboard and sailing up and down the Mississippi River makes going north and south fairly rapid. And going east and west would be made more, more convenient by canals and later by railroads and now by the interstate highway system. A fourth and still more important consideration is that as almost every state will on one side or the other be a frontier and thus will find in regard to its safety an inducement to make some sacrifices for the sake of the general protection, so the states which lie at the greatest distance from the heart of the Union and which, of course, may partake least of the ordinary circulation of its benefits will be at the same time immediately contiguous to foreign nations and will consequently stand, on particular occasions, in the greatest need of its strength and resources. It may be inconvenient for Georgia or the states forming our western or northeastern borders to send their representatives to the seat of government, but they would find it more so to struggle alone against an invading army or even to support alone the whole expense of those precautions which may be dictated by the neighborhood of continual danger. So basically the inconvenience of having to go to the national capital would be more than offset by the sharing of the burden of defense because it's a lot less trouble to send representatives to the capital than it is to raise and maintain an army sufficient for the defense of the frontier without the help of the other states. He says, therefore, if they should derive less benefit, therefore, from the Union in some respects than the less distant states, they will derive greater benefit from it in other respects, and thus the proper equilibrium will be maintained throughout. <clears throat> I submit to you, my fellow citizens, these considerations in full confidence that the good sense which has so often marked your decisions will allow them their due weight and effect, and that you will never suffer difficulties, however formidable in appearance or however fashionable the error on which they may be founded, to drive you into the gloomy and perilous scene into which the advocates for disunion would conduct you. Hearken not to the unnatural voice which tells you that the people of America, knit together as they are by so many cords of affection, can no longer live together as members of the same family, can no longer continue the mutual guardians of their mutual happiness, can no longer be fellow citizens of one great respectable and flourishing empire. Hearken not to the voice which petulantly tells you that the form of government recommended for your adoption is a novelty in the political world, that it has never yet had a place in the theories of the wildest projectors, that it rashly attempts what is impossible to accomplish. No, my countrymen, shut your ears against this unhallowed language. Shut your hearts against the poison which it conveys, the kindred blood which flows in the veins of American citizens, the mingled blood which they have shed in defense of their sacred rights, consecrate their union and excite horror at the idea of their becoming aliens, rivals, enemies. And if novelties are to be shunned, believe me, the most alarming of all novelties, the most wild of all projects, the most rash of all attempts is that of rendering us in pieces, 
in order to preserve our liberties and promote our happiness. But why is the experiment of an extended republic to be rejected merely because it may comprise what is new? Is it not the glory of the people of America that, whilst they have paid a decent regard to the opinions of former times and other nations, they have not suffered a blind veneration for antiquity, for custom, or for names, to overrule the suggestions of their own good sense, the knowledge of their own situation, and the lessons of their own experience. To this manly spirit, posterity will be indebted for the possession and the world for the example of the numerous innovations displayed on the American theater in favor of private rights and public happiness. So, what he's saying here is, you know, don't listen to their complaints. We've already shown by our history that these complaints are immaterial. The 13 colonies had banded together to overthrow England and to establish self-rule. The blood of the colonists had been shed together on the battlefield. They had a common cause. They had a common love of liberty. And to reject that and say that they now have to become smaller separate nations is not accurate, not an accurate reflection of the history of, of the nation. Also, the fact that this form of government was new, at least in the way it was going to be applied, wasn't a sufficient reason to reject it. Just because it's new doesn't mean it won't work. Um, think about all the new stuff we have these days that work just fine. Everything from automobiles to airplanes to cell phones. To the internet by which I am addressing you now. So the, the, the American theater, meaning the, the nation, the, the people that live in America, had already accomplished and achieved much that was considered new and novel. And so the fact that this form of government as instituted by the Constitution was new and novel should not in itself be a reason to reject it. Continuing, Madison writes, had no important step been taken by the leaders of the revolution for which a precedent could not be discovered, no government established of which an exact model did not represent itself, the people of the United States might at this moment have been numbered among the melancholy victims of misguided councils, must at best have been laboring under the weight of some of those forms which have crushed the liberties of the rest of mankind. So basically, had the the colonists not been innovative, we might be a monarchy. We might be a dictatorship. We might be, you know, ruled by a council of the elite. Okay, I can get depressed thinking about that. Happily for America, happily we trust for the whole human race, they pursued a new and more noble course. They accomplished a revolution which has no parallel in the annals of human society. They reared the fabrics of governments which have no model on the face of the globe. They form the design of a great confederacy, which it is incumbent on their successors to improve and perpetuate. If their works betray imperfections, we wonder at the fewness of them. If they erred most in the structure of the union, this was the work most difficult to be executed. 
This is the work which has been new modeled by the act of your convention, and it is that act on which you are now to deliberate and decide. Publius. So that is Federalist 14. Um, drop me a line. Let me know if you like it with the commentary or not. <laughs> Um, I'll be happy to shut up and just read if that is your pleasure. Um, but maybe it helped you understand it. Uh, if so, I, I'm happy about that. It is Friday. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. But between now and Sunday, Saturday, January 21st, is National Squirrel Appreciation Day. So feed a squirrel tomorrow. It's also National Hug Day. So for your own safety, please do not try to combine the two holidays unless you are dealing with a very, very tame squirrel. Hugging it is probably not a good idea. Just feed it, look at it, take pictures. All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. Have a great weekend. Make sure you go to church on Sunday. Do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here on Monday for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.